Well, good morning. When my wife, Amy, and I uh, moved here, we uh, were, were blessed enough to be able to purchase a house, a fixer-upper, and uh, we had some really great friends and some family members who decided to come be a part of this uh, project with us. For any of you who ever worked on a house, you know a few things. First, a project is never as easy as it should be, right? You map it out, oh man, this is going to be, this is going to be a piece of cake, right? Well, you find out that ain't true. And then the second thing is, it always takes longer than it should have. You can map out two, oh man, this is a two-hour job, even if I give myself some, some leniency, some grace, it's going to take three hours. Six hours later, you're about to cuss, and you are mad at whatever project this is, and you're calling everybody and their uncle saying, I need a hand, right? Well, that happened to me this past weekend. Me and my wife got a smart thermostat. So this is one of those thermostats that you can mess with your iPhone and all those other, other, other things. And so I go to put it in. I'm like, man, this should be easy. I've got all the wires right there connected. Man, piece of cake. I put it in the wall. My AC works. Thank, thank the Lord. Everything's good. And I was like, well, let me just make sure everything works. So I go to test the heat. I know, but, you know, in six months, I'm going to need heat, right? Maybe. So I go to test the heat. Nothing happens. Just, it's looking at me like, you know, oh, I'm, I'm working, and nothing's happening in my house. So I, I go back down. Now, keep in mind, to, to do this project, I had to crawl underneath my house. I crawled underneath my house. <laughs> so there's that. And then the second part of that is I am a, a big sissy. I cannot stand spiders and snakes. Can't stand them. Don't get them near me. I will run. I'm not a fan. And then a crawl space, what loves crawl spaces? Spiders and snakes. So I crawl underneath my house a second time to figure out why this smart thermostat isn't working. I'm on the phone with the engineers, of the, the smart thermostat people. I'm like, hey, this is going on, blah, blah, blah. Four hours later, they look at me and they say, well, just something wrong with your HVAC system. And I go, man, my heat worked before I put your thermostat in. There ain't, no, there ain't no way something's wrong with my system. And I start remembering that a day before, while I was at VBS, or two days before while I was at VBS, a gas company guy comes by my house, replaces the gas meter on my house. Well, if you've ever had that happen, they turn your gas off, and they don't turn it back on unless you're there to test everything. But they don't leave a note saying your gas is off. And so my hot water heater apparently stayed hot enough for me to never notice, because when I took a shower... I had hot water. So I go through all these hours of trying to figure out this project. Unbeknownst to me, some guy didn't do his job by leaving me a note to say, hey, I turned your gas off. That's why your furnace and your heat won't work. There's nothing wrong with the th smart thermostat. You don't have to spend a couple hundred bucks calling an HVAC system. So in the future, just leave people notes. That was totally free. It has nothing to do with my sermon. But... <laughs> But when we work on our houses, there's things that, you know, we, sometimes we just need to make a phone call. Sometimes we just need to call somebody who's maybe done the project before, maybe had some, some different life experiences, and we can call them and we can say, hey, how did you do this? Because I'm looking at this thing, and it's, it's speaking Mandarin, and I only speak Spanish, right? Like, I got no clue what's happening here. And they can walk you through some of the easier and more difficult parts of doing the job. And they say, hey, when you're doing this, make sure you hold your head this way because it'll work better, right? They can give you all of these little tips of working on your house. That's why DIY TV shows and YouTube have exploded over the past couple, several, several years 
Because why? I can Google, how do I place this part on my vehicle? How do I do this? And yet, YouTube, some guy has a video on there with you know, shaky hands and an iPhone minus two, and you can kind of see that bolt right there is why I need to take this off, and it'll work. We get this principle in our life. We get, we understand looking to other people who have done something for knowledge. We, we get looking at them and saying, hey, you've done, you've done this before. What, what can I learn? Even Brad Paisley, a country artist, wrote a song about this. It's called A Letter to Me. Most of you probably know the song. I'll read a few lyrics. It says, at the stop sign at Tomlinson and 8th, always stop, stop completely. Just don't tap your brakes. Obviously, there was a car accident or something there. Brad Paisley's writing a letter back to himself. And when you get a date with Bridget, make sure the tank is full. On second thought, forget it, that one turns out kind of cool. Each and every time you have a fight, just assume you're wrong and dad is right. Kids, that is like, that's a win for you. Just FYI, that's not just to Brad Paisley. That's to all of us in the room uh, with our fathers. And you should really thank Miss Brinkman. She spent so much extra time. It's like she's seeing the diamond underneath and she's polishing, polishing it till you shine. I think we get this concept of looking to other people who have different experiences, have been down the road further than us, for wisdom and for guidance. Even uh, in Proverbs chapter 1, verse 5, it says, a, a wise man will hear and increase in learning, and a man of understanding will acquire wise counsel. So as we're in this series today, talking about a life worth living, I, I want to ask you, who have you ever turned the lights out on? I want to ask you, when a, a life is worth living, who have you maybe talked to about? Hey, is, what are some of the principles in life that really make a life amazing, that really make what we do day in and day out worth it? And we're going to be looking at a guy named Paul writing this letter to a church in Philippi, and Pastor Jerry hit on it last week, and we're going to be in there this week again in Philippians chapter 2. And a few weeks ago, Jerry and John kind of talked about how do we get things in our life that we want. They said, how do we get the things that we want in life? And one of the things that I love that John said is he tells the people, make a list. Make a list of things in your life that you really want and try to boil it down to 10 things. Try to, try to really get it down to the nitty gritty of not just I want this truck, but why do you want the truck? Is, is it because you want, to, you, you want to be able to haul stuff off? You want attention because you got this big old truck, the 16-year-old boy with a lifted truck? That's usually what that is, right? We, we, we want things in our life. Why do we want them? Make this list. Because I think this is a pretty big, big and important question, and I'm not sure that when Jerry and I were talking about this series several months ago, we would have any idea the weight of what makes a life worth living question would hold coming into this week. If you've been watching the news, you know that Anthony Bourdain and Kate Spade this week took their lives. And I think when we ponder on suicide, most times we think about young people. We think about people that are going through struggles and changes in their lives. And, you know, with the, the release of TV shows on Netflix that are popular that kind of romanticize the situation we, we kind of just always put it in this young person's mindset. But yet, when we see two successful people well into their life who 
basically through their actions say that this life is not worth living, it starts to beg the question, what makes a life worth living? I don't know if it hits you that way this week, but for me, certainly. I came home and I, I saw the news uh, of what had happened and I, I was just shocked. And I don't even necessarily follow these two people or I certainly don't wear you know, clothing from one of them. Uh, and I don't travel the world uh, as the other one certainly had a show about, but I look at their lives and I go, man, how, how could we get to a point of this far and just ask the question, man, is my life even worth living? And so hopefully through the end of this sermon, through, through the, the looking at what Paul writes to this church in Philippi, we can get a little bit of a glimmer of the nugget of truth that Paul says is worth living for. And so I want to refresh you just kind of where we are in Philippi. Philippi is this location. It's a central hub for the Roman uh, Empire, and it's a central hub for trading. It's a, it's a huge metropolitan area. This is, a, this is a place used for people to get through easily to Asia. There's, there's certainly a bunch of different languages being spoken, and Paul's writing this letter to this church that he planted in response to a gift. Because they gave him a gift, and they said, hey, thank you for doing what you do. Go on missionary travels. Plant more churches. Go out and do this. So Paul is doing that, and upon doing that, he gets arrested and thrown in prison. And he writes this letter in prison, not knowing if he's going to get out, not knowing what his step is, his next step is, certainly thinking that this might be the end. So he writes this letter, and much of what he's communicating to them is the basis of what a life worth living is made up of. So if you have your Bibles, Philippians chapter 2, verse 12. So then, my dear friends, just as, you, just as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now even more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Now, I think we see work out and salvation, and I, I certainly... Uh, this resonates in my head. I see workout salvation, and I immediately think about all the things that I have to do to be good, all the things that I have to do to be righteous, all the, all the things that I think make up working out salvation and what that looks like in my life. But Paul is not talking about the things that we can do to attain this thing called salvation, because what we understand is that performance doesn't equal forgiveness. I, I, I don't care how good you think you are or how good we can be we will still fall short of the glory of God. So our performance doesn't equal forgiveness. But what he's, in, what he's really doing with the church is he's encouraging them in the same way that a coach will encourage his players to have good form. See, when we go into a game as a coach, you're certainly you're scheming, you're doing all these other things, but at the end of the day, what matters most is your form. Now, you can be a great hitter, but if there's something going on with your swing because you get out of form, then you might be hitting some pop-ups or hitting some grounders or missing the ball completely. You've got to have good form to complete the strategy of, oh, I want to hit it to left field, or, oh, I need to be able to pull it and get down to first base. Yes, I said pull it because I'm a lefty. So I know the rest of you are like, what is pull it, you know, for you know, first base? But anyway, we've got to have good form. That's not just coaching on the field, but that's good form. What he's talking about as Christ followers, we need to get back to 
the basics. And the basics for him, he's already led it up for the ch church of Philippi, is to elevate the cross. Do everything in our lives to elevate the good news of Jesus. An interesting point, he ties that there in verse 12. Do this not only in my presence, but now even more in my absence. I, Paul definitely gets the sentiment that sometimes we have the occasion to act differently around different people. I, I work with students a bunch, and one of the things that I, I love to hear students say, and by love I mean I don't love it, is, oh, you can't do that in church. Oh, you shouldn't say that. You said that in church? Okay, so is there a difference between inside of a building, because that's what they're talking about, they're not talking about the church gathered as people, as when I walked outside the building? Like, what's, what's this, is there like pixie dust inside of here, sprinkling on us right now, that makes all of a sudden this is the place that we can't be who we were outside the walls? No, see, what, what God actually wants us to be, is he wants us to be those people who, outside the walls and inside the walls, we're the same people. We, we want to be those people who are elevating the cross in everything that we do. And so my question comes back to when, when Paul says, hey, I know you've been doing this in my presence, but even more so when I'm not around, how are you acting is, it hits me back to go, who is in my presence and how am I acting when they're around me? Do I perform differently around different groups of people or am I staying the same person throughout? Am I watching my language because I'm around this person over here and they're going to be you know, a little more strict on me, are they going to, this person over here, they're, oh, they're going to understand, I can just chum it up with them, they're cool, that, that don't, you know, that, that's, that works, that's fine, or do I, maybe, maybe I need to start thinking about who, who the people that I'm dating in my life, maybe, maybe, maybe the people that I'm in a relationship with, maybe they're leading me down different paths that maybe I don't want to do, you know, the 20-something, the, the 30-something, 40-something single life gets a little more challenging when we have all these apps in our world that can you can just swipe right and swipe left and go, go through all the different people and you can, you can go to bars and scenes and meet all these different people. And the question you've got to start asking yourself is, are the people that I'm bringing in my life the have the same values that I do? Do they have the same beliefs? Are they, are they really focusing their life around elevating the cross? And if not, do they need to have a place in my life? Am I acting the same way around them that I do when I'm somewhere else. He goes on, verse 13. For it is God who is working in you, enabling you both to will and to act for his good purpose. So again, we're talking about this working out of salvation. We're talking about living, elevating the cross, keeping to the fundamentals, the form. And right here he says, look, there's two different types of people. There's Christ followers and non-Christ followers. And I think we, we tend to think the Christ followers, oh, those are the good people. Right? Those, those are the folks that, that do good things. And the non-Christ followers, well, those are the bad people. And I don't think that's what he's saying. I, I don't think in any way, shape, or form that you can look through Scripture and, and, and make a case that Christians are necessarily, on their own merit, good people, and non-Christians are bad people. I think what the argument that you could make is that one group of people in Christ has the Holy Spirit working inside of them, renewing them, changing their minds, so that they're being revealed the righteousness and the character of God. And the other people, well, they don't have that yet. They don't 
have the Holy Spirit working inside of them the same way that a Christ follower does. Matt Chandler says it like this. The sin that you do is natural, completely natural. But the good you do for others is supernatural. This goes back to the point that we are not working out our own salvation. In no way, shape, or form is Paul saying, hey, you need to be a great person. You need to make sure you go to church and make sure that everything you watch and the things that come in your life and go out of your life are, are at, at the top of the game with righteousness because that's how you're going to stay closest to God. No, 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 no. Paul's saying, look, you need to understand that the good things that work in you are through Christ and Christ alone. Because if we don't do that, what we will do, we will have a ten- tendency to look down on others. Don't they know better? Maybe they don't know better. Weren't they raised better than that? Maybe they weren't raised better than that. Maybe they don't know the same things that we as Christ followers know because we have the alive, living king of the universe inside of us, renewing our minds every single day, and we're being washed by the blood of Christ. And so what that should give us is it should give us a perspective. It should give us a way to be able to work with the people who don't have that. We had several conversations this week (laughs) during VBS dealing with tough kids. And the only way I think sometimes we can deal with just tough people in our lives is to understand that where they are, we once were. Maybe those same people who aren't following Christ, maybe those same people who are going through all sorts of struggles, is they're going through the same situation that we had already gone through, but Christ in his sovereignty, brought us out of those situations, and he's putting us in a position, in a path to collide with them so that we can get them to see the same truth that we saw in Christ. It ain't that we dug ourselves out of the hole. It's that he lifted us up, and we're here now lifting other people up out of the hole as well by the grace of God. He wants us to understand what it means to live as a Christ follower And it's starting with getting our hearts and our perspective right on Christ, not on ourselves. Verse 14. Do everything without grumbling and arguing. That's tough. So that you may be blameless and pure, children of God who are faultless in a crooked and perverted generation among whom you shine like stars in the world. Hold firmly the message of life, then I can boast in the day of Christ that I didn't run in vain or label or labor for nothing. Be different in the way that you carry yourselves. When I was new in my Christ walk, there were several people around me, several guys discipling me, and most of them had a very different personality type than me. Most of them were the cheery, the uh, guys who wake out of bed with a smile on their face. And for years, I thought I had something wrong with me. I was just broken. What? Man, if Jesus can do that in them, why can't he do it in me? And the more I dove into Scripture and the more I started just asking God, like, is there something wrong with who I am? The more he started revealing to me is God doesn't make you an optimist. God, God, because you became a Christ follower, he didn't just say, hey, you're all of a sudden going to look at everything through the eyes of an optimist. Glasses, glasses, all full, not half full, it's full. Just, it's, I'm, I've completed the rest of it. 
And I started looking at these guys in my life, and I started going, I bet he was just this, he was a cheery, lucky guy before Christ. And then you go to Guatemala, and for those of you who have been there, you meet a guy named Carlos. If you ever get a chance to go, Carlos will fill your soul. This guy has gone through the gamut of tough life situations, and you could probably spit in Carlos's face, and he'll still smile back at you and go, thank you. <laughs> he is just the happiest guy in the world. And certainly there's, there's, there's a, a portion of that that I think that joy absolutely comes from Christ. But I think there's also a portion of it to understand who we are as people. We carry some of the baggage of who we, who we are and, and, and who we've been and some of the mistakes that we've made. And so I read a passage like this, and, and I go, do everything without grumbling and arguing. Well, that's me like half the time. But then I, and then I start thinking, well, am I really looking when I'm grumbling, when I'm arguing, was I, am I really looking at it from Christ's perspective or am I looking at it from my perspective? Because sometimes maybe it needs to just say, Chris, stop talking, right? I don't have to be the guy with a smile on my face and saying, hey, good job, buddy. Maybe I just need to stop talking, right? If you've got nothing nice to say, don't say anything at all. And I go back to Scripture and do everything without grumbling and arguing. And so I need to be looking for those opportunities to show Christ, to elevate the cross in my life, even though I might be a person who's maybe a little rough around the edges. I might be a person who grumbles too much. I might be a person who's always looking for a way to have some sort of confrontation in my life. Maybe what I need to do is I need to take a step back and say, all right, God, work through me. How do you want me to handle this situation? Certainly, I'm not going to be an optimist overnight, but there's definitely better ways that I can handle conversations. We need to be different in the way we carry ourselves. I had a conversation with a pastor when I was growing up, and he made a statement to me one day. We grew up at kind of a, it, it was a, I call it a contemporary church, but we had a praise band and all that, but it certainly wasn't lights, camera, action, kind of the way that, you know, we have and some of the more modern churches today have, but uh, we were talking one day about worship, and I was like, man, I would love for our worship band to do X, Y, and Z, and our production to be along with it. And he goes, you know, Chris, you know, how good would all those conferences and those events be if we did that every Sunday? And I just looked at him and said, are you serious? Is that, that's, that's your comeback? That's your, that's your line? And he goes, yeah, I mean, really. I mean, they, they spend a lot of time and money on those events and those conferences. How good would it be if, if we did that every Sunday at church? And I said, well, how magnificent would God be every day if we just didn't use the creativity that he gave us? What if he just made the sky gray? I mean, we have colors for a reason. There are things in our life that reveal the magnitude and the magnificence of who God is. You can look around and you can see creation through the, the seasons and the colors and the winds. And yet we, we say we want to come into a place and, you know, paint the walls brown and don't turn on any lights other than the, the can lights with that little that nice little fluorescent hum. And that's how, that, that's how we want to worship our, a creative God. What about the person who's like super creative? What about the person who, who God gave them all this artistic things inside of them? We're never going to give them an opportunity to express themselves? What about those old churches with the gorgeous stained glass and the nice architecture and everything that reveals the true beauty of who God is? All that's just because they shouldn't have done that. They should have done it for a conference or an event. Now, see, I think everything we do in every time of our life, we should be looking to reveal the magnitude and magnificence of Christ. 
So whether that's coming into church and using nice lights to create an environment so that we can have an engaging place, or whether that's through my, my language and having, sprinkling with salt so that I can in, in, engage with people and so I can have conversations with them and show them what Christ has done in my life. It's not about just going to an event or a concert. We all get all those things. What's it, what, what it's about is my day in and day out life revealing the nature of who God is inside of me. We need people asking, why is that guy so bright? Why is that guy so alive? And it ain't because he's just some optimist. It's because we, they should be able to see through our words, through our nature, that Christ has done an amazing work in our lives. And if you're not that big personality, sometimes it's a little small thing like, thank you, God bless you. I mean, I know we're in the South, but really pay attention to the conversations that you have with people lately. We don't say things like that as often. Sure, Granny does, but we don't say that. When, someone, when something good happens to us, we don't immediately go, thank you, Lord. I mean, verbally. We might do it internally. We, don't, we certainly don't do it verbally. How, how often are we looking for opportunities through our language to acknowledge the blessings of God on our life. And I'm not just, you know, saying this because I'm great at it. I'm saying this as a people. What if we started looking at every word that came out of our mouth as an opportunity to reveal the glory of God? When we, when we got that bonus, thank you, Lord, when something happened, you know, in, in our day, maybe somebody pays for our gas or the, you know, the pay it forward at Starbucks. We look to praise the Lord in those situations instead of just assuming that it was good karma or, you know, we got lucky, right? No, no, no. What if, what if we started looking at everything as God's sovereign hand on it, giving us a blessing in our lives? I think we could bring a lot of glory and magnificence to the name of Jesus, to people looking at our lives, if we would take steps in intentionality and say, God, thank you for these blessings. We get it in the big speech when you win the award and when this happens at the job, we stand up behind a thing and first I want to thank God. I get that. But do we do that in our day in and day out lives? Philippians chapter 2, verse 17. But even if I am poured out as a drink offering on the sacrifice and service of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all of you. In the same way, you also should rejoice and share your joy with me. So Paul is in jail. He's wrapping it up. He, he, he feels like his life's about to come to an end. He, he has no idea what's next. And in this letter, he writes to them, and he says, I am willing to be poured out as a drink offering, as a sacrifice, and a service on your faith. Now, this statement might seem kind of weird to us, but it's, it certainly would have been familiar to the, the church in Philippi. It's something they use in the Old Testament quite frequently, and it's, it's this offering process, and it's actually very uh, remarkably close to the same words that Jesus used with his disciples right before he was going to be betrayed and murdered. In Luke 22, 20, I think I even have this right here. Luke 22, 
verse 20. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper and said, This cup is the new covenant established by my blood, and it is shed for you. So here Paul takes this picture of a cup being poured out. And he says, I am willing to do this for you. Are you willing to do this as well? See, Jesus, being a cup poured out, died for the guilty. The innocent dies for the guilty. And we see this imagery being played out in John chapter 19, where Jesus is hanging on the cross, and the Roman soldier pierces his side, and blood and water flow out. See, Jesus died. There's two ways to die in a crucifixion, and one of them is by asphyxiation, where most people will lift up on their legs and hold up and get the pressure off of their lungs so that they can take a breath in. The, the, the man on the left and the right, that is how they died. We know that because the Roman soldiers broke their legs so they could no longer lift themselves up. The Roman soldiers broke their legs so that they had to die of asphyxiation. The second way to die is, caught, is, is hypovolemic shock. And so what happens is your heart is pumping so hard that it begins to build fluid up around the area of your heart. And that eventually will kill you. And it, it, it goes into pericardial effusion. And yes, I had to look up these words. And so what you see there from the Roman soldier is that he stabs Jesus' side. By the way, keeping one of the, uh, the, the uh, foretellings, one of the prophets' uh, words about Jesus, how no bone would be broken. So he stabs Jesus' side and we see the blood and the water pouring out, and Paul is making this same picture clear to the church in Philippi that as a Christ follower, I am willing to live my life the same way he did for us. I'm willing to be poured out as an offering. So what makes a life worth living? What makes someone get to that point where they have determined that their life is most fulfilled when they can be a sacrifice poured out for someone else. Paul talks about the idea of worth in Ephesians and in Colossians and in both letters uh, to the church in Thessalonica. And he says, walk in a manner worthy of your calling. Understand that in Christ, we have certain expectations. There are certain things that God has called us to and walk in that manner. So living worthy means two things for us. To elevate the cross is the first thing. As Christ followers, everything we, sh we do should not just bring honor to Jesus, but it should exemplify who he is to the people around us. We should be elevating the cross in our lives so that that way when we live our lives, people don't just see Joe or Jane. What they see is they see a model of who Christ is, flesh and blood to them. They should see a tangible kingdom of God's people working in and out of their lives. And we can do this in a bunch of different ways. It, for those of you that have Instagram and you follow famous people, you'll notice that these famous people use their profiles to proclaim all of the things that they care about, right? 
There, there's, there's, I mean, I, I follow tons of actors and actresses and, and sports athletes. And what you'll notice is that they will be all over their Instagram posting this picture, posting that video, posting this thing, the, the other thing, all for all of these other views over here. But what stuns me is how quiet the Christian community is for our standpoint. What stuns me is how, how often are we using our social media in those platforms? And some will say, oh, I don't like using it for that, I just want to be social. And I, I get that, I, I completely understand that because I revert that way as well. But when the world around us is using every little tool they have in the world to elevate principles and, and rules and things that have nothing to do with the cross of Christ, when is the church going to stand up and say, we're in a battle to get Christ's name out. We have to elevate the cross. We are going to fight the same way you're fighting. I think some of us have fallen asleep that it is a battle. It's absolutely a battle. It's a battle for your kids. It's a battle for your kids' kids. There are forces at play out there that are trying to manipulate the way we feel about certain things, the way we believe about certain things. And if the church doesn't take a stand, we may look up one day and our country and our world may not be the same way we remembered it. We have to start elevating the cross in our lives. And the second part, as the band comes up and I close, we've got to prevent ourselves from chasing after the wind. In Ecclesiastes 1.14, it says, I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and a striving after the wind. We're so easily sucked into seeking after things the fade. Let me, let me clarify that. It's not wrong or sinful to want things. It's wrong and sinful to want things above the cross. A promotion at work is a really good thing. Being a workaholic is a bad thing. Wanting a new car, good thing. Not aligning your finances with God's principles so that you can attain that new car, it's a bad thing. Health, healthy lifestyle, really good thing. Living a lifestyle to gain attention or so that people will hit that like button, bad thing. Providing the opportunities for our kids is a good thing. Neglecting to teach them the importance of church and Christ-like living is a bad thing. Don't allow Satan a foothold in your household by chasing after the wind. Isaiah says it like this in chapter 55, verse 2. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread, and you labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good, and delight yourselves in rich food. Paul in this chapter, in, in his final words to Philippi, wants them to understand that the greatest pleasure in his life is to live after Christ, to elevate the cross. And so when we, when we look at the struggles of our world and we look at the things that are going on and we're 
we're in a tough place and we're just wrestling with issues and we're wrestling with our bank account, we're wrestling with our relationships, we're wrestling with all these things and we cry out, what is this life worth living for? Right here through Paul, God has spoken to us and he said, life is worth living for me. That's what you were created for. You weren't created for struggle and for strife. You were created for victory. Because we're saved from victory. See, Christ defeated death so that we can have eternal life. And it ain't just heaven, although that's going to be a party. That's going to be rocking, right? But what he's called us to, to live on this life is to create heaven on earth. It's for us as Christ followers to impact those around us who have maybe fallen, who are maybe struggling, and pulling them up and say, this is what life is worth living. It ain't just about me. It's about being in the world, but not of it. It's about connecting with people. It's about lifting up. It's about giving them a hand. And it's about, as, as a church, when we come together, fully praising the Lord with our hands raised and nothing holding us back. Walking in our lives, following him in those manners is what Paul is saying to this church, is you've got a lot of things going on. Walk in a way that's worthy of following after the Lord. And there, and only there, will you find a life that's worth living. Let me pray for you. God, I just ask that this morning we can start to understand what it means to live a life worth living. That through your word that we can connect and hear from, hear from you. That you'll speak directly to our hearts. And that you'll allow us a glimmer of what you want us to, to seek after. God, I pray if there's anyone in this room this morning maybe struggling with something, Lord, I pray that you'll send your spirit. That you'll comfort them. God, I pray for those kids that gave their life to Christ this week. I pray that we can be in a, a church that comes around them, a body of believers that comes around them and champions them, lifts them up, and models for them a life worth living in Christ. It's in your son's name I pray. Amen.